Well, it's uh, great to be with you. Um, I've been telling quite a few people, it's been, man, great to see a lot of familiar faces. I mean, I've known a lot of you for, man, 20 plus years. And, uh, you know, Bob was my youth pastor back in high school. Um, And uh, for a lot of you, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just been great for all of us to be here. So I want to say just uh, thank you for having us. We're going to be here for about three weeks uh, and I would love to get together with anybody who wants to, uh, man, learn more about what we're doing. And uh, I love talking about the reservation. I love talking about our experience. I love talking about, uh, yeah, what's going on. And so, um, yeah, feel free to pull me aside or send me an email or uh, or even take me out to eat. I'll do that too. Just kidding. But uh, that's one of the cool things coming back. Like I'm hitting all my favorite restaurants, so it's like, Chick-fil-A, and that may sound crazy to you, but out there, like, Chick-fil-A is an hour and 20 minutes away, so, yeah, Chick-fil-A and Brick House and all these kind of places we're hitting, so it's, it's been good to be back. I also want to say, uh, Yate Abena, that means good morning in Navajo, and uh, I'm not even sure why I'm crying, but I want to say that to Grandma Mary, uh, I want to say that to Rosita, uh, to Rashina, to Darshina, to Uriah, and to Henry and to Anna. There's a family out in Gap, uh, and Bob mentioned you know, this one family that you know, watches this live stream. Well, they, we have a family out there in Gap that uh, they're almost watching every single Sunday. Uh, and so I want to say hello to you, and I want to say especially hello to Anna because you're taking care of my chickens, you're taking care of all my dogs, you're feeding the hummingbirds, you're, you're doing all those things for me, so I appreciate that, and we miss you guys, and... Uh, Looking forward to get back and uh, seeing you again. So, um, so one, I want to start with this. You know, our family hit a new milestone uh, this year. Um, our oldest daughter, SV, graduated from high school. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, definitely pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, and I think you go through things in life sometimes that makes you step back and evaluate or think through and and like. I, I don't know, I just never thought about being a dad who had a daughter that graduated high school. And so I'm happy for her, I'm excited for her. But for me, like I think back to when I was 18 and I graduated and I thought, man, my dad is old. You know, my dad, like, and he was older than me. He's about four years older than I am now. But just remember thinking like how ancient my parents seemed. And now for me, I'm thinking like, dude, I, I am, like I, I'm, I got a kid who's going to be going to college soon, and I've got one that's going to be graduating in two years, and I've got two more that are coming up, and um, and it just makes you, yeah, just step back and (laughs) think through life a little bit, Um, but man, we are so proud of her, Um, and we're looking forward to what God's going to do in her life and what her path may look like in the future. We're proud of all our kids. I don't know how in the world I have the kids that I do, Um, but... um, they're nothing like me, and I'm thankful for that. Um, you know, when they, you know, come home from school with report cards, they want they want us to see their grades. Like they they pull it up on their phone, or they'll pass it out because I mean they get amazing grades. And for me, it was quite different. I know for me, I can remember like coming home and just hoping my parents forgot that today was the day the report cards came out. Yes, thank you. And I remember hiding my report card in the end table or hiding my report card. Like back then, it was just a piece of paper, but hiding it in the bookshelf. Um, 
because it was a legitimate fear. Like for me, I, I, man, I know one time my kids found one of my old report cards, which <laughs> I wouldn't want to show that to anybody. Um, but you could just kind of see the surprised look on their face because for them, and I'll brag on them, I mean, they, they, they've gotten all A's this year. Um, and if they get a B or a, you know, whatever, I'm kind of like, no, bring, bring that up. Bring, but for me, like, if I got one A, it was like Christmas time. If I got two A's, it was amazing. But I was like, yeah, B, C's, occasional D, every the one I hid, I actually got an F uh, in, in, a, in a history class. But uh, it was quite different. And I, I thought back to, you know, for, for just, yeah, for me with school. Like, I was only concerned about, like, just, okay, what do I need to do? So I would ask kind of questions like this. What do I need to do? Like, how much do I need to do? All right, when does it need to be in by? All right, uh, can I turn this in late? And probably my favorite question is, if I don't turn this in, how much will that affect my grade? But I would ask all those questions. I wasn't concerned about growing or learning and really understanding things. I wish I could go back because, man, I did. I missed out on a lot. Um, I know many CNU students uh, are on break in their home for the summer, but I'm sure they would tell you, and many of you here would tell you. Uh, I met, uh, this is crazy, John Bedford. I was talking, I was talking to him earlier. I taught him in fifth grade. He walked up. I'm like, he knows me, but I'm not sure if I know him. But now he's got a doctorate in chemistry. He would tell you, I'm sure, the same thing, that Every student, every college student suffers from the same thing on the first day of other classes, uh, and it's called syllabus shock. When you get that syllabus and you see, here's all the papers I need to write, here's all the books that I need to read, and it's like, you know, they're showing you the whole semester at one time. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I remember, you know, when I was in college, and uh, getting the syllabus, and, and that was my thing. Okay, what do I need to do to move on? What do I have to get done to pass? Now, maybe if you didn't go to college, I would say maybe a job description. When you apply for a job, they give you a job. Here's everything that you are required to do. And one of my thoughts has been this. I know for me, and maybe you as well, but it's easy to approach Christianity in the same way. And for me, for a long time, that's how I approached my faith. And I was asking God, yeah, I was asking God the same questions. God, what do I need to do? What do you want me to do? You know, what are the commands? What are the rules? What, you know, what is the requirement so I can move on, so I can pass, so I can you know, move on to the next place, next step. And so I approached Christianity for a long time in that fashion, in that way, and it's easy to do it. And here's the thing, if you look at any other religion besides Christianity, those are the right questions. We live about an hour from Utah, uh, and so we have just, I mean, a lot of Mormons uh, that live out there. And, man, we've got some great relationships and great friendships with some people uh, you know, teaching where I teach at in Page, Arizona, uh, you know, we've had some, yeah, man, just great people, but they ask those questions. For them, those are the questions. As a Mormon, what do I need to do? What do I have to do? It's very performance-based, but Christianity is different, and that's kind of what I want to look at this morning. 
because the writers of Scripture actually tell us not to approach Christianity in that way. Now, here's the thing for me, again, going back, uh, you know, it takes me a while sometimes to learn things. And so maybe you, you're already here, you've already moved past this, but I think to me this is essential. Uh, man, this is critical that we understand this. So as, as I go through this, even if you already get it, hopefully it's a reminder for you. Uh, at our home church, we've been going through the book of First Peter, uh, and we started that, I think, back in, uh, I think, March or April. And, I've been, man, I've been loving studying First Peter. I've been loving speaking on First Peter. Uh, and there's been so many things, like, just, you know, on a Sunday morning that we got through a, a verse. There's just so much here. We've been going kind of slow. Uh, but we're going to be in First Peter for much of this morning. Uh, I don't have, you know, three points. I don't have an outline to go through. I really got a, kind of just one main point that I want to drive home. And if you get that one main point, then, then you got it. Uh, and so if you want to turn to First Peter, you can. The, the, the verses will be on the screen. We're going to be uh, reading through uh, verse 1 through 16. So what I want to do is I want to read all 16 verses and then come back and kind of look at some sections piece by piece. So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the, who be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have been told uh, you by those who preach the gospel to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 
as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So we're going to kind of stay in this section here for a little bit. And uh, before we actually get into some of this, there's a few things that I that I want to say, and, and these are things that are obvious and things that I'm sure that we know already, but it helps me, um, I think, just to remember a few things. And one is this, that this is a letter written by someone to someone. Now, it doesn't look like the letters that we have, so when I write a letter, which is very rare now, usually it's email or things like that, but, you know, on holidays or uh, things like that, you know, I will sometimes write my kids a letter, or I will write my wife a letter, and, you know, it's usually something purchased from Walmart or whatever, and you put it in the envelope, and it's got the to and the from and all those things, and it's very similar. I mean, you know, again, it wasn't a letter, per se, in, in that way, but it was a letter, and that's important to realize because, again, it's written to somebody, and one of the things I've been telling Hidden Springs Bible Church where we go is this, and, and and again, it's a small distinction, but I believe it's an important one. First Peter was not written to us. Okay, it's not written to us. I would say it's written for us. And here's the distinction. You know, my name was not on this letter. And that helps me to remember that there were actual people living 2,000 years ago who were going through very, Man, certain situations, circumstances, and this letter is addressing what they are going through. So sometimes when we read Scripture, I know for me sometimes, I'm just looking for a verse that encourages me or that makes me feel better or speaks to what I'm going through. And it's always important as we read Scripture that, man, this is written by someone, and it's written to someone. And as Christians 2,000 years later, we can go now and read this, and we can get things from it. But as you're reading Scripture, always try to look at the context. Who was this written to? Why was this written? Because Peter is writing a letter to people who are going through certain things, and he's addressing those things. And if you go to chapter 5, there's a man named Silas. Uh, and many scholars believe Silas was the one who was taking this letter to all of these churches, and he would open this letter up, and he would read the letter to the churches, and he would roll it back up, and he would go to another church, and he would read the letter, and he would close it back up and go to another church. And, uh, and so Silas was going around and reading this letter to its recipients. And so one of the questions we want to ask is, okay, who is he writing to? So we know he's writing to believers. So he starts out, to God's elect. He's writing to believers. And there's clues in 1 Peter uh, that indicate these are, this is a multi-ethnic church. These are Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So at this point, I mean, the church has become multi-ethnic. And there's, again, we don't have time to kind of get into all the reasons why, but there's definitely clues within Scripture as far as what Peter says and how he says it that we know. He's talking to Gentile Christians here, and he's talking to Jewish Christians here. So he's a multi-ethnic church made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians. He says these Christians are exiles. Okay, now if you read Scripture, that word comes up, I mean, throughout Scripture. 
I mean, maybe one of the one of the biggest areas you can see. Go back to the book of Exodus. You know, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were in exile. They were wandering. They were sojourning. They were in between. Uh, so these Christians are exiles. Now, I want to say this. All right, in First Peter, and I love how he does it. All right. He talks about how they are physically in exile, but he also talks about how they are spiritual exiles, and he uses both. And so you have some commentators say, no, they're just it's totally physical, and you have some say, nope, it's totally spiritual, but there's clues in here. He refers to them as both. He says to these Christians, you are in exile. You have been removed from your homes. You are not living in your homeland. You are essentially, in a sense, on the run. You're homeless. Now, when I say homeless, I don't mean they're without shelter, without a home, but basically they, what they knew as far as home, what they knew as their customs, their traditions, all right, what they knew as life is gone. But he also talks about how, and it must include us, that we are spiritually in exile. This home is not our home, but our home is in heaven. So, but For them, they are physically exiled. They are spiritually exiled. He says they've been scattered. So the exiles that are scattered throughout these five providences, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia, so modern-day Turkey, we're talking about an area the size of Texas, okay? So a large area. So it's, it's written to Christians in an area the size of Texas, okay? So when you think about Silas, all right, he's not just going like to one church and he's walking next door. I mean, this he's walking a long way, all right, going to these different churches, reading this letter. So Christians who are scattered and spread uh, out in these five providences, all right, roughly the size of Texas. And we know they're being persecuted. Two times, uh, Peter brings this idea up in, in the, and he says, one time he says, you're facing trials that are fiery. You're facing fiery trials. You also say these trials are bringing about, causing you to suffer grief. So they're facing persecution. And we also know from history that in a matter of years, the persecution is going to get a lot worse. Okay, so that's who he's writing to. So I want to go back and just think about because this, this is important. He's writing to Christians, okay, who are no longer living in their homeland. They're being pushed out of their homes. They're on the run. They're being persecuted. This time we know, you know, under Roman colonization, Rome would actually sometimes send hundreds of citizens in these areas to colonize these areas, to bring their culture, to bring their music, to bring their language, to bring their food, to basically get rid of one culture and bring in the Roman culture. I tell you, when I read this, you being out where I live, I couldn't help but think about the Native Americans, that was their experience. And so when I, I mean, it's the, some of the people that I know, they could tell you stories of, of their grandfathers and their grandmothers and, and the elderly that experienced their very, this very thing. Another country comes in and colonizes an area, and you talk to many Navajos, and they will talk about the times they went to boarding schools and their hair was cut and they were beat if they talked in Navajo, and they couldn't wear their traditional clothing. And it was all about getting rid of one culture and replacing it with another culture. And so that's exactly what's going on here. That's where these people 
are at. That's what they're facing. And so Peter is writing to people to address what they're going through, to address the situation. So one of the things you think about, okay, what does Peter want them to know? If you were in that situation, okay, whatever home you're in now, if you were removed from that home and you were being persecuted for your faith and your everything that you knew was no longer, like what would Peter say to us? What would Peter say to you? So I want to look at verses 1 through 12, because what he says, I think, is not what I would expect him to say. How he starts is not what I would ex- how I would expect him to start. So let's go back to verse 1. He starts out, to God's elect. So why do you start out with that? Now, some of this is speculation, okay? But I believe he does it for a reason. To God's elect. What does the word elect mean? I don't want to get too deep into that. But simply to be elect means you're chosen by God. If I was in their shoes, do you think I would feel chosen by God? When you're going through difficult times, do you feel like God is with you? you? Or do you feel like some of the writers in Psalm, God, where are you? Why is this happening? I don't get this. I don't understand this. And he starts out reminding them, no, you're chosen by God. And I love, you know, so I grew up under Bob Mosley as a youth pastor. So every story I've heard five times, every, so I know all, all this stuff. But I, there's some of the things he said, man, that like one of the things are just him talking about, you know, I think, uh, I think it was playing baseball. I forget what sport it was. But he talked about how like when you are, you know, when you're picked last, how just like, Man, sad that is and frustrating that is. And he always used to talk about, man, that God essentially picks you first. Even like last week, you know, Bob said that, man, God doesn't just love you like he likes you. And so when I think about this in terms of like God chose me, it's like, man, God picked me first. Like God wanted me on his team. God says, I want you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. I don't feel worthy. None of us are worthy. But God, he says, God chose you. And I believe in salvation, you know, that God chooses us and that we choose God. I'm not sure how those two things work together, but I think Scripture teaches both. But it doesn't lead with this idea, man, that you chose God, that you responded to God's call. He doesn't lead with that. He just leads with, man, no, God chose you. And he goes and he says, this is what it looks like in verse 2, You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God that you were in God's mind from eternity past. Before creation, man, God knew you, and he wanted you, and he chose you. And he chose you through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God, so here we have all the members of the Trinity. you got the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, but the Spirit it was working on you. The Spirit was drawing you to himself to be obedient for the purpose of being obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. And there's there's an Old Testament reference. So he's speaking really kind of these Jewish Christians here at this point, and he's talking about forgiveness, that you have forgiveness through Jesus. But I love how he starts out, you're chosen. In verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, verses 3 through, I believe, 9, or even maybe more, this is one run-on sentence. There's no breaks. There's no periods. I mean, Peter is just like, he's got this huge thought that, so for me, Lord, I, I've got to go back and read this slowly and multiple times, but as you do it, it, it's amazing. So he says here, in God's great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Key ideas, new birth into a living hope because of what Jesus has done. If you're one of these Christians, do you think your hope right now is on like maybe level 10? Like you got lots of hope? I'm not sure. If you're facing persecution, if you've lost everything that you know, I mean, what do you, do you, I mean, but here he says, no, you have a living hope. You have a hope that can't be taken away. You have a hope that even the Romans can't get rid of because your hope is based not in what you can do or what might happen or what you hope will happen. Your hope is based on an actual event that took place, the resurrection. And he's reminding them, even though you've lost everything, you still have the only thing that matters. You have this real, alive, genuine hope that's based in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now you have a hope that will never end, that can't be taken from you. I love how he says it's a living hope because he's referring to Jesus It's not this like idea of hope. It's a person. Your hope is Jesus. And he moves on. He says, and it's hard to kind of just start and stop because this is one continuous idea, but you have this living hope through the resurrection, all right, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Why does he say that? Why does it say that you have an inheritance now that can never perish, spoil, or fade? Where if you are a Christian, he's writing to you, you've probably lost everything. You're probably losing everything. You've probably lost your livestock. You've probably lost your land. You've probably lost everything that you knew. You've lost your inheritance. But he says here, no, you have an inheritance. And I love how he says it's kept where? In heaven. The Romans can't touch it. They can't take this. It's kept in heaven for you, and it will never perish. It'll never spoil. It'll never fade. It will always be there again because going back to the resurrection. And he says this, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so here he's referring to, you know, even in the time that you're facing right now, God is with you. God is shielding you. God will be with you through this fire. God will be with you through this time of trial and persecution and difficulty. He's reminding them of God's presence. In all of this, he says, you greatly rejoice. Verse 6, though now for a little while you have you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the power of the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, 
even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what is Peter saying here? Okay, so we started out kind of reminding them what God has done. God's chosen you. God's done an amazing work in your life. He's reminding them of what is to come in the future, that you have this living hope that will lead to this inheritance, that one day uh, you will be with Jesus. Now he's saying during this time of trial, that even in this, God's got a purpose for you. And that's what I love. You know, in the Christian faith and what we read in the Scripture, that God can take difficult times, and even those aren't wasted. The worst of times, the hardest of times, even what they're going through right here, he says, man, God's got a purpose. He can use this in your life. I think I was talking to somebody today. uh, They're going to be speaking on James, the same message that God takes these trials to bring about growth and maturity and perseverance. He can take the hardships and the pain and use those for good in our lives. And so he's reminded of what God is doing in the present. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And one thing I I wonder right here, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now. Now think about with these Christians here what they're going through. Kind of going back to what I said before, I'm sure some of them are wondering, man, where is God in this? This is not what we were expecting that would happen. We didn't see this coming. But you still see their faith even in the difficulty. And it's leading them to be filled with this joy, an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of the faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you searched intently and with greatest of care, trying to figure out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And I love this because Peter basically says, man, this right here is a part of God's plan. This did not catch God by surprise. And so for a lot of these Christians, they knew the Old Testament. And God, and here Peter is saying, you know, the prophets of the Old Testament, those individuals in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the events that you're facing right now, that you're in right now, the sufferings of the Messiah and everything that would follow. And he says they were looking forward towards and trying to figure out this very thing that's happening right now, that Jesus has rose from the dead. And so he's pointing back to the Old Testament. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have been told you by those who preach the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look. So he starts out in verse twelve, in verses 1 through 12. That's how he starts out. How would you start out? I'm not sure. I mentioned before, you know, how I approach school. You know, my, my approach to school is, okay, what are the requirements? What do you want me to do? You know, what's the bare minimum? What's the expectation? And so many times when I would read Scripture, I would just skip the introductions. All right, because in most letters, when someone, Grace, my wife, will be married 20 years next year. 
uh, when she wrote me a letter, I wasn't really concerned about so much like the introduction or like, you know, these, you know, whatever. Just I want, like, I want to hit the juicy stuff, the good stuff, like the most important things. So I would kind of selectively read, you know, some things. And we do that with letters. When I get an email, so when I, you know, I was teaching uh, from a lot of other teachers or, you know, the principal, whatever, you would, you know, hope you're doing well. And blah, blah. I was like, no, what do, you, what do you want? Like, what, what, do you, what do I have to do? What do you want? What do you want to tell me? Just kind of get to it. And that's why I would approach Scripture. A lot of times, God, what is it that you would want me to do? So when I would read First Peter, I would just, man, get through, man, 3 through 12. All right, now let's get to it. In verse 13, this is where I would focus. Verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. So I would think to myself, what's the requirement? What do you want me to do? Okay, be holy. Okay, what does that mean, God? And you read on, to be holy means a little bit later to love deeply. He wants you to love deeply. What else does it mean? Well, in chapter 2, rid yourself of all malice and hypocrisy and evil and slander. Okay, what else? And you just kind of go through and just look for those, like, what are the commandments? What are the requirements? And then I would work really hard trying to, in First Peter, be holy. Something else I learned from Bob, and I'm sure you've heard before, but when you see the word therefore, you always go back and look for what, what is therefore. Therefore always points back to what came before it. I always heard that. And then sometimes I would look there, but I want you to think about this. Verse 13 starts with the word, therefore. It's pointing back to verses, you could say, 1 through 12, 3 through 12. And I want to read something to you. Uh, so as I've been going through this, reading some commentaries, I was reading two different commentaries, uh, and, and they were kind of from different denominations, but they're saying almost the exact same thing. And the reason why I want to read it, because to me, like this, this is good. Here's one guy, he says this. Peter began this letter by singing the praises of the God who had given such a great salvation to the Christians of Asia Minor. We just read that. What is Peter doing? He is, he's standing against, he's, he praise be to the God and he's singing the praises of this amazing salvation that we have. Reflection on this salvation now leads him to the heart of the matter. So again, he's getting to the point of the letter. What is Peter's point? While you are living outside of your homeland, while you're being persecuted, while you're living under Roman colonization, his point is be holy. Okay, so he's getting to his point. Reflection on this salvation now leads him to the heart of the matter. An exhortation on how to live in a society as Christians who are oppressed and excluded. His order follows a pattern throughout the whole Bible. All right, three words, get this. Theology, prompts, ethics. That is, beliefs about God and experiences with God. Undergird beliefs about what is right and wrong. I'm going to read that again, mainly for me. 
because I'm slow sometimes. <laughs> His order follows a pattern throughout the whole Bible. So he says here, you will see this throughout Scripture. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But here's the pattern, theology, who God is, what God has done. Always prompts ethics, what he wants you to do, how he wants you to live. That is, the beliefs about God and experiences with God are always undergirding. They're always supporting. They're always giving life to beliefs about what is right and wrong. Here's another commentator I want to read, and I love this one. The imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The indicative of what God had done for us and in us precedes the imperative of what we are called to do for him. Without the indicative of what God does, the imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner, the victim of his illusions, and it becomes a commandment that crushes or drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. I want to read that again and just kind of say a few things about it because, again, this... This is so good. The imperatives of Christian living, what God wants you to do, how he wants you to live, the commands of Scripture always begin with therefore. What do we see in 1 Peter? That's true. There's a therefore and there's a command. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims. So he doesn't begin to tell Christians how to live until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Okay, the indicative of what God had done for us. So he spends, again, that first part of chapter 1, what God has done for us, who he is, uh, and, and in us precedes the imperative of what we are called to do for him. So again, who God is, what he's done, what he's doing in our lives always comes before what he's telling us to do and how we should live. And listen to this, man. This, this is what, for, for me, really got me. Without the indicative of what God does. So if I read Scripture like I used to read Scripture, I would skip the indicative. I would skip who God is. I would skip what God has done. I would skip what God is doing and just get to what does he want me to do. He says, without the indicative of what God does, the imperative, the commands, they're addressed to a helpless sinner, the victim of his illusions. It becomes a commandment that crushes or that drives to vain. That's what religion does. If you get those things flipped, it will crush you. And I love what Peter says because, man, Peter says here, you are chosen. You are loved. God has moved. God is working. You already have God's favor. Now live for him. And so many times we get that flipped. We think to ourselves, if I live this way, 
if I do the right things, if I obey his commands, then I have God's favor. And the first Peter says, no, you already have God's favor. Not because of what you've done, not because of who you are, but he points to Jesus because of what Jesus had. You have a living hope because of Jesus. You have an inheritance because of Jesus. You have God that is with you because everything is because of Jesus. And so for me growing up so many times, that's just, maybe it was my personality, I would get that flipped. And man, it was crushing because you know what? We can't keep the commandments like we should. I love Romans 7. I love you know, the hymn you know, where it talks about that I am prone to wonder. I'm prone to leave the God. That's us. But what Peter is saying this, man, you already have God's favor. God has already chosen you. God has already done the work. You're loved. You're his. And you can live for him now in freedom because, and it's crazy to say this, when it comes to his commandments, whether I man, live them out or I fail miserably, nothing changes. Like God's love for me does not change. My performance does not change how God feels about me. And that's freeing. And I often compare it to my wife. I know, you know, at one time in, in our marriage, I, I just, as guys do, I was being an idiot. Um, and had, had done some things that were just stupid. And I remember getting an email from her the next day at work. And it simply said, I forgive you, I love you, and I always will. You know, sincerely, Grace. That was it. And what is she saying? Essentially, I, I know what you did. You don't deserve this. You, don't, you haven't earned this. You haven't got, but I'm going to essentially show you the love that we have in Jesus. And no matter what you do, you have my love. Now, as a husband, what does that do for me? That changes me. That brings about freedom in my life because now I know I don't have to earn her love. I don't have to perform. To re- She's going to give me her love freely no matter what. Now, again, comparing that to God, it's very limited. But I think for these believers in the first Peter, man, how amazing is that? He's saying to them, yeah, I want you to be holy, but I want you to know everything between you and God is <laughs> he's chosen you. He's loved you. You have this inheritance. You, everything is in place, and now you can live for him in freedom. It's beautiful. And going back to kind of what one of the commentators said, I know we're kind of running low. I'm going to try to wrap this up. But you see this throughout Scripture. And when you start looking, you do. If we could throw up 1 John 4, 7 through 12. You'll see the same thing here. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So I want you to see there, you see how theology prompts ethic, ethics. What is the command? What are we supposed to do? 
love one another. What's a requirement? Well, the requirement you see right there, he says, man, if you know me, you're going to love me. And if you love me, you're going to love others. And you see right there, theology. Again, I have these books up here. So we think about theology. We think about like, so when I was in school studying this kind of stuff, like to me, this is what theology was. It was all like just making sure I got the right systematic theology. I've got the right doctrine. It's all up here. And what is, you know, scriptures? No, it's about really knowing who God is, knowing what he's doing. And here in 1 John, he says, man, if you know God, it's going to lead to you loving God. And I love how he says, if you don't love people, he says what? You have no clue who God is. You can't get ethics before theology. You have to know who God is first. Think about Galatians 5. What he says in Galatians 5, he says, walk with the Spirit and you'll produce the fruits of the Spirit. In John 15, Jesus says, remain in me and you'll see fruit in your life. You know, Psalm 1 is the tree. What does the tree to do? It's planted by these waters, which leads to producing fruit. And again, all these are theology before ethics, knowing who God is, remaining in him, walking with him, following him. And he says fruit will then naturally produce. I want to throw one more scripture out and we'll be done. John 14, 15. Uh, so I used to, I shouldn't say hate. I did not like this verse for a long time. If you love me, Keep my, he says, you will keep my, I think it should say, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And I always read that as, okay, if I'm obedient, if I obey his commands, that's proving my love for him. So I would go out and I would try to be obedient. I would try to be holy. I would try to be loving. I would try to be patient. I would try to be kind in order to prove my love for him. But that's not what this passage is saying. What does it say? If you love me, if you remain in me, if you walk with me, if you stay with me, if you know me, if you love me, if we have this, if you truly understand who I am, what's going to happen? You're going to be obedient. So today, what's the one thing I want you to walk away with? And again, um, you may already understand this and get this. But I think for some of, some of us, I think it's, it's just a good reminder. If you get these things flipped, it's crushing. And there may be some of you right now who just feel crushed. I can't do it. It's too hard. I want to encourage you. First Peter starts out and says, focus on the who. Not the what, not the how, not the when. All the questions I asked when I was in school. What do I have to do? How much do I have to do it? And when does it begin? You know, focus on the who. As Christians, you know, what I'm seeing kind of throughout Scripture more and more is this, that, that, that idea that our goal, our job is to focus on the who. On, and it sounds simplistic, but man, but we're good at getting things totally messed up. Focus on Jesus. Know Jesus. First Peter starts out with, man, I want to focus on Jesus. And then he gets to the commands. And then we can live freely for him. Not because we have to or because of a request. It's just because, man, God has been so good. He's changing me. And what leads to that, what leads from that is, uh, man, living for him. So I hope that makes sense. Because one of the, man, I know for me, 
man, one of the most difficult things is to feel crushed, like that one commentator said. You know, Jesus talks about this idea in the Gospels. He says, man, take my yoke upon you. He calls all these people who were already weary and crushed and burdened and tired, he says, take my yoke upon you and you will find what? Rest. I remember I read that you know, a few months ago. Man, most of my life I didn't, I didn't feel that. I felt burdened. I felt weary. And I'm really, man, I, I'm, I'm, I got it wrong. Like, this yoke is not something that brings about more of a burden and more weariness. It's something that gives. As we walk with him, it brings about this freedom. So let me pray and we'll be done. God, thank you for your word. Man, God, and so many times, uh, yeah, we get it wrong. And we focus on the wrong things. And what I love about Scripture is that it continues to point us back to Jesus. Even with First Peter, guys, we, we have hope because of Jesus. We have an inheritance because of Jesus. So God, I pray for all of us today. Uh, there's anybody here who is just feeling by feeling crushed. Uh, and feeling unworthy, and feeling unable, God, may our eyes be directed to you, God. You have, man, through Christ, brought about forgiveness, brought about salvation, God, that we can rest in you. Uh, and help us to realize, God, that our performance, God, that uh, these commands, uh, God, they, they are not something to prove anything to you, to gain anything from you, uh, God, that we can walk in freedom because you've already taken care, God, of uh, man, salvation and forgiveness uh, through your Son. God, thank you for this time we've had together. I uh, just pray that today, uh, no matter what we do, God, that we can uh, man, just live for you in that freedom. Uh, Lord, help us as people see us to see uh, a little bit of who you are. I pray this in your name. Amen.